now, the Blaze Radio Network presents 40 Acres and a Fool. Here's your host, Cam Edwards. Well, hello and welcome to another edition of 40 Acres and a Fool from the Blaze Radio Network. I'm your host, Cam Edwards. Thanks again for uh, being a part of this program. It has been, uh, I don't want to steal Garrison Keeler's life, so I can't say it's been a quiet week on the farm here. Actually, it's been a very noisy week on the uh, farm. It is noisy. Not just the uh, farm animals, but it's the time of year where the uh, the, the crickets and the frogs and the uh, cicadas are going uh, every night, they are just loud as all get out. Uh, plus, we've got our neighbor, the cows, uh, who are in the field. And, uh, yeah, the, the goats making noise. I'm actually outside on the uh, picnic table this evening, so you may hear an occasional goat or a pig. Looks like the uh, chickens down by the uh, coop have all uh, gone in for the evening. The sun is setting over the garden uh, here on the 40 acres it's uh it's a good time of year it's it's been really hot it's been really wet the um i think i talked last time about the uh, tomatoes and how the tomatoes weren't doing so well because uh in part we've been getting uh really just a lot of rain so uh, it's still about half the garden doing really really well the other half of the garden actually the the uh place where the pigs were last uh still doing really well but the uh, other side of the garden Usually we put compost down every year. We uh, we didn't have enough for every bed, and man, you can really really tell the difference uh, in the uh, uh, the the energy that's being uh, produced by these plants. But we are now getting uh, tomatoes every day. The carrots have been uh, cleared out. We're in the process of uh, freezing uh, a lot of the carrots, and then we'll uh, we'll actually can uh, some of the uh, carrots as well. First couple of pints of tomatoes are ready to be canned. We have several pounds of blueberries in the freezer. Uh, Miss E has made blueberry jam already this week, and I think uh, some more on the way. So every day we're starting to get a little bit more of our bounty. We have to start planting some of our uh, fall crops now, including some beets and some lettuces, uh, second round of beets again. We've got some peas that have to go in the ground this weekend. But things are good uh, on the farm, and I hope that things are good for you as well. Once again, you know, the the struggle this time of year is just finding the time to get everything done. Uh, So the grass is a little bit longer than I would like around the picnic table. But uh, I just look at it as I'm giving the pollinators around the farm uh, many, many more opportunities to to get pollen and uh, hopefully... Keep those bees going. President Obama and the rest of the administration will be so proud of me because I am following my own pollinator plan. And, you know, June was National Pollinator Month, according to our federal government. Uh, It would be easier to uh, maintain the yard and keep it, I suppose, pollinator-free, keep the grass down to the point that uh, there weren't little heads of clover and whatnot for the little wildflowers for the bees to get. But... uh, once again, I've, I've been away for a couple of days. It was a good cause, though, this time, I have to say. Actually, a, a great time. Uh, Tom King, head of the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association, invited me up to Poughkeepsie, New York, for the 144th annual meeting of the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association. It was an all-day affair at the Mid-Hudson Civic Center, uh, and it was a great time. So I, I, I was up there this past weekend. And uh, it was a, a wonderful time on the ground. Uh, getting there actually was fine as well. Getting home uh, was kind of a 
pain in the neck, to be quite honest with you. I, I, I you know, I've, I've flown quite a bit. I've never really run into, uh, personally, the problem of oversold flights until I was trying to get back from the uh, Poughkeepsie area. And there aren't a lot of flights uh, from Poughkeepsie, as you might well imagine. So my itinerary had me flying from the uh, Newburgh, New York area down to Philadelphia and then from Philadelphia to Washington, D.C., where then I would then uh, drive home. And um, as I said, the event was uh, this past weekend. The event was actually on a Sunday, so I needed to get home Sunday night in order for me to be able to do the show Monday morning. Uh, so the event wraps up about 5 o'clock. It was a great time. Congressman Chris Gibson uh, gave an amazing speech, absolutely incredible speech uh, there at the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association annual meeting. Uh, he's the guy, by the way, who uh, uh, ran for Congress. He ran for re-election in 2014, ended up beating his uh, Democratic opponent by 30-plus points. This is in a district that President Obama carried and the uh, uh, twice actually carried in uh, uh, both 2008 and 2012. 2014, uh, Congressman Gibson's opponent was this guy, Sean Eldridge, whose uh, husband is the uh, owner of the New Republic and thought that he just, you know, go into this district and, oh, uh, we'll buy a house here. And not really a house, more of a mansion, more of an estate, really, now that I think about it. Uh, and then I'll run for Congress. And it's a uh, left-leaning district, so it'll be great. I'll just I'll be a congressperson. Uh, and the voters of the 19th Congressional District of New York State had other ideas. And Congressman Gibson, again, won by 30 points uh, in his re-election campaign. He then announced that he was not going to be running for re-election. So there's a lot of speculation about what the future holds. Perhaps, uh, perhaps Chris Gibson, congressman from New York, uh, challenging Andrew Cuomo for governor next year in New York State. Who knows? Um, so it was a wonderful time. But anyway, we, we wraps up about 5 o'clock. I get to the airport about 5.45. My flight's at 7 o'clock. The, uh, it's a small airport, so it's fine. And the uh, nice lady behind the counter there at the airline says, uh, well, I'm, I, yeah, you don't have a seat there on the uh, second leg of your journey from Philadelphia to uh, Washington, D.C. It looks like the flight is oversold. And I said, well, I really need to get to uh, Washington, D.C. tonight. So so what are my options here? Um, there was a one seat left on the uh, last flight out of Philadelphia to Washington, D.C. Got in about midnight. Uh, was it Reagan? means you're going to get to your car. If you don't check your bag, you don't have to wait at the uh, baggage carousel. You can get to your car 15, 20 minutes after you land. So I'm like, all right, well, I guess we... Yeah. I guess we home close to 4 a.m., but all right, let's 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 do it. The other option was to uh, rent a car and then just drive back, uh, which I was going to do. I, I was, it was a possibility. I, I don't mind. I've actually, I had to do that a few years ago uh, coming back from the national matches at Camp Perry. Had a flight from Cleveland to D.C., and it ended up storms coming in. Flight got canceled. Every flight from Chicago was diverted to Cleveland. And uh, my flight got canceled at the same time, so there was this mad rush to the uh, rental car counter, and I made it before everybody. And I was able to rent a car and drive back. Uh, this time around, that wasn't an option. It was going to be $195 for a an economy car to go from uh, Newburgh, New York, to Washington, D.C. So I, I can't do that. So uh, I sucked it up, and we had a, I, had, I had more time on the ground than I did on the air or uh, in the air on my way back from New York. But it was all right. It was it was good. You make the uh, 
you make the best of a bad situation. Every day is its own reward is, is my motto. So I took the, uh, took the time there when I was on the ground in Philadelphia. I, I wish I almost had enough time to go down to the downtown area and see the Liberty Bell and Independence Hall, but I didn't have quite that much time. So I, uh, I got caught up on some reading, got caught up on some correspondence and, uh, uh, eventually, yeah, landed in DC, made the long drive home. If I seemed a little spacey on Monday's program, it's because I was, I was really tired. I didn't get into bed, uh, until after four o'clock in the morning, got a few hours of sleep, got up to, uh, uh, go to work on Monday. And I was just sort of in a, a fog, uh, it seems. So I think the show was still fine, but uh, if I seemed a little out of it on Monday, now, as Paul, see, I, I almost ripped off Garrison Keeley, now I almost ripped off Paul Harvey. I was going to say, now you know the rest of the story, but uh, that line's been taken too. Anyway, now you know what uh, what was going on behind the scenes there. Now, coming up uh, on this edition of 40 Acres and a Fool, uh, our chickens are doing fine. We have not had, since we put up the, the uh, chicken wire, and we cover the top of it so the chickens can't fly out. We have not had any issues with coyotes or foxes eating our chickens. This is a good thing. We have uh, more of our hens laying now. So we're getting about four eggs a day. That should increase uh, probably at least four more, I'd say, in the next week or so because the uh, uh, chickens are all getting to the age now where they're laying. Uh, we'll probably have some more uh, introduced into the flock here before long. Uh, but, uh, you know, it looks, I gotta say, I mean, eight eggs a day, uh, for one, two, three, four, five people in the house. Um, generally that's enough. Generally, we're not going to go through eight eggs a day. So we may just keep the, uh, the chickens where they are. Uh, but the news this week in Virginia, big farm news. Well, not really, but I did see the story. Uh, Governor Terry McAuliffe is, uh, keeping chickens at the governor's mansion, uh, there in Richmond, Virginia, which is, you know, look, that's, that's cool for what it is. Uh, he's trying to promote agriculture, I guess. But uh, <laughs> we got we to gotta talk about this because this is, it sounds like this is very, uh, granted, it's the governor's mansion, but it sounds like this is very frou-frou chicken keeping. Uh, so we'll talk about that after a quick timeout. We've got uh, some thoughts on a new book, Arthur C. Brooks's The Conservative Heart. Arthur C. Brooks is the head of the American Enterprise Institute. I had the opportunity to interview him this week. Uh, about the new book. It's a, a very thought-provoking uh, read, at least it was for me. So we'll we'll talk about the, uh, the conservative heart on this edition of 40 Acres and a Fool as well. We're going to step away for just a moment, but we'll be back from the 40 Acres as the sun is setting over the pastures here in the heart of Virginia. Stick around. There's more 40 Acres and a Fool from the Blaze Radio Network coming up right after this. 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. Buck Sexton. Somebody's life is going to be at least temporarily, if not permanently, ruined because a bunch of politicians want to seem like they're tough on crime by creating not just a gun-free zone, a water gun-free zone. These sorts of idiotic laws hurt people, and they also compound other idiotic laws such that we are living within the tyranny of endless stupid laws. Buck Sexton. Weekdays, noon to 2 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network.
Welcome back. It's 40 Acres and a Fool from the Blaze Radio Network. Cam Edwards here. And the uh, Washington Post with the story of Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe, uh, who is keeping chickens at the Virginia governor's mansion. Apparently, uh, Governor Terry McAuliffe made a promise to his two youngest kids when he was running for governor if he won, uh, they could get chickens. He also promised Mayor Bloomberg that he'd go after gun owners, but uh, that's another story. The uh, small flock, the Washington Post says, makes McAuliffe the first modern Virginia governor to keep farm animals at the 200-year-old mansion. It also appears to make him a rarity among governors nationwide, although for some reason, the Washington Post says, the National Governors Association does not track data on gubernatorial chicken keeping. That's kind of sad that uh, Governor McAuliffe is the the only one the in, in all of the 50 states keeping chickens. Uh, Hillary, Dolly, Snape, and uh, Camo, the Washington Post says, supply the mansion kitchen with nearly 30 eggs a week and help make garden tours come alive for uh, school groups. You should raise some broilers too, I think. <laughs> you know, I mean, listen, uh, we, we definitely use the uh, eggs from chickens, but, uh, you know, we're eating chickens there at the governor's mansion. Maybe we should uh, raise some broilers, too. Uh, First Lady Dorothy McAuliffe said, We love animals, and it just makes it feel a little bit more like our home. To be able to have our dogs, have our chickens, have our basketball hoop, our lacrosse goal. Ah, oh, yes. Surprised we don't have the entire lacrosse field there. Uh, the uh, birds, the Washington Post says, also highlight the administration's priorities. McAuliffe has uh, focused on expanding the economy of Virginia, whose biggest industry is agriculture. And Dorothy McAuliffe has put her efforts into improving childhood nutrition. Dorothy McAuliffe said, while showing the chickens to a reporter, quote, it's part of what we talk about every day. Agriculture is Virginia's number one private industry. It's an important part of our economy. And it's also an important part of wellness and health and nutrition. It's a great way to highlight all of that. It is true that uh, agriculture is... Uh, Virginia's number one industry. It kind of makes you wonder, uh, maybe in addition to the broilers, maybe there's room at the uh, governor's mansion for a, uh, let's say, a Tyson Foods chicken farm with, you know, 30,000 birds or so. Just Because, I mean, really, that's how most of the chickens are raised. Uh, they're, they're not free range. They're not raised organically. So we're really going to, if we're really going to highlight agriculture in the state of Virginia, then maybe we uh, want to have more than for chickens running around, or you know, you're you're gonna uh, maybe I don't know provide some say say that having four chickens, having a small flock, being the small farmer, that's uh, what you want to do. That's what you want to promote. Maybe you start having some policies that help small farmers out in the state of Virginia. I see. I don't I don't know if the governor is willing to go that far. This is you know after all basically just based on a, a promise he made to his kids. And as we all know, there's a difference sometimes between what uh, politicians promise and the uh, policies that they enact. So uh, good for the McAuliffe kids that they get to have chickens. I hope that they're, are, uh, that they're enjoying them. Uh, Joel Salatin, the uh, guy behind Polyface Farms here in Virginia, as the Washington Post describes him, the uh, Shenandoah Valley farmer made famous by Michael Pollan's bestseller, The Omnivore Dilemma, is also quoted in this story. He said the uh, chickens make important statements. And no, not the kind, uh, important statements about understanding where food comes from and eliminating, quote, cultural condescension towards working in the soil. He says, uh, what it says to the world is this is important. Having a garden at your home, it's important. 
This is not something that intellectual people diminish their reputation by doing. All these things should be able to be integrated into where we live and not segregated away into nameless, faceless factories that are aesthetically and aromatically repugnant. All of this stuff should be brought into proximity to the human experience. It's you know I, I gotta say I really like Joel Salatin. I've had the pleasure of meeting him. Um, he's a uh, a great guy. He is a, a huge advocate for the small farmer. He's a gun owner. He's a Second Amendment supporter. Uh, he is an entrepreneur. Uh, he is a guy. And listen, I'm right there with him when he says uh, when he talks about the the uh, bringing these things into the proximity of human experience. Uh, if you eat. You know, it strikes me that what what Saladin is talking about here is mindfulness, being mindful of the food that you eat rather than just mindlessly stuffing a burger into your mouth or mindlessly popping a uh, nugget or five or ten into your gullet. Think about where your food comes from. And if you know that that egg that you ate for breakfast actually came from your backyard and came from that bird, uh, then you you do become a little bit more mindful about the other food that you eat. Now, look, I still eat McDonald's. I still eat Arby's. I uh, eat at restaurants. I do not uh, eat solely food from my farm. Although I do have to say that I, I think more and more about, and, and I try to eat, especially this time of year, more and more from our farm. Uh, whether it's goat meat gyros, tonight was a, a lovely tomato salad, uh, mozzarella caprese with uh, the the farm uh, the goat's milk mozzarella that Miss E is making. Try to do this. Uh, I, I do, but um, I, I'm certainly not perfect. Um, but I am, even when I'm eating fast food now, I'm I'm trying to be mindful uh, that this was a cow at some point, and that um, this cow died at some point in order that I can have this quarter pounder. Uh, mindfulness, I think, goes hand in hand with with thankfulness for for what you have and for uh, and for what was sacrificed uh, in order for you to have that. I started. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, the books that I've been reading later on in the uh, show. But I, I read a biography of Joseph Campbell um, over the past week or so, and this was one of the things. He was a uh, very very much a omnivore. Uh, he was not a vegetarian. He, he did not believe in, in any sort of moral superiority and uh, eating nothing but vegetables because uh, regardless of whether or not you are eating meat or vegetables, something has to die in order for you to eat a meal, right? It doesn't matter if it's a T-bone steak or it's a salad. Something that was living is now dead in order to sustain you. And we don't really think about that. Uh, all that much. Uh, Joseph Campbell said that uh, vegetarians were just people who uh, liked food that couldn't run away. <laughs> I kind of like that, uh, that that phrase. But, you know, when you do start to think about this, again, whether you're a vegetarian, whether you're a, uh, or a red-blooded carnivore or maybe most commonly an omnivore, every meal, every meal uh, comes with a sacrifice. And I think that's what uh, Joel Salatin means when he talks about that mindfulness. Uh, he does have one complaint, uh, and it's a, a complaint that, that really I, I think a lot of people have. Uh, he points out that uh, the governor can do this. The governor can keep his four chickens. But uh, Joel says, if I want to do it in Augusta County in a subdivision, it's illegal. 
where we lived in Northern Virginia, in Fairfax County, it was also illegal. I don't know if it was a Fairfax County ordinance or if it was an HOA ordinance. It might have been the HOA. But uh, in our old neighborhood, we actually had friends who wanted to raise chickens, uh, and they were told that they could not. They didn't want to raise 30,000 chickens. They didn't want to have a Tyson's chicken farm in their uh, little front yard area. But they just wanted to have, I think, a couple of hens. If you have a couple of hens, you don't even have to worry about the noise. I mean, really, you you know, if you have a rooster, uh, yeah, you're going to have to worry about noise. But if you have a couple of hens, they're really, your neighbors are not even going to notice that you have them there. Uh, the Washington Post also uh, quotes Delegate Matthew Ferris from Campbell County. He's a Republican. He's co-owner of the Lynchburg Livestock Market. He says, I'd like to see the governor get a few cows. <laughs> he says, the yard is fenced in. The uh, Post also points out there was a time when farm animals uh, were not a novelty there at the governor's mansion. Uh, Governor Philip McKinney, who served from 1890 to 1894, moved to the mansion with a rooster, five hens, and a cow named Bossy, according to uh, a history of the mansion that was published in 2012. Now, now here's where it gets a little silly. The Washington Post says the, uh, the McAuliffe's chickens live in a handsome forest green hen house attached to a pen in which they can peck outside under the shade of a live oak tree planted by Rear Admiral Richard E. Byrd. That's fine. Uh, for Polar explorer, brother of one-time Virginia Governor Harry F. Byrd. I, I don't expect Governor McAuliffe and his uh, wife and his kids to have, you know, a, a homemade uh, coop built out of pallets or stuff like that. I did, sure, you get the Williams and Sonoma model, whatever. Uh, they they do have them cooped up like like we do. I, I think for uh, good reason. Although Dorothy McCullough says uh, it's the red hawks that that they're worried about, uh, not necessarily the coyotes or uh, foxes there in uh, Richmond, Virginia. Three of the birds the post says are red dorkings, which is an ancient breed that the uh, Jamestown settlers brought with them, and is also one of perhaps the uh, funniest breeds of bird simply to say what kind is that oh that's my red dorking uh the other is a more modern golden comet which is meh not as much fun to say uh taking care of the hens dorothy mcauliffe says is a team effort she's been helping out along with the mansion chef and the general services crew and here's what i don't get you got four hens four that really isn't that much of a team effort. I have to, I really, that's not, you don't need, uh, let's see, Dorothy McAuliffe, the first lady, the mansion chef, uh, and the general services crew, which would imply at least four individuals to take care of four hens. It doesn't take four people to take care of four hens. Really. You, uh, really, really, you, you feed them. Uh, in the morning, you check their food in the afternoon. You uh, make sure that they have water. Check the, the fences and everything. Um, now, look, I understand as First Lady, you might be busy. Your schedule might change. You might not be there on a, a regular basis. I, I would think that your uh, mansion chef would uh, be able to, to handle those responsibilities on a daily basis. But, no, apparently it it, uh, it doesn't just take a village to raise a child. It, it takes a village to raise four flipping hens there at the uh, governor's mansion in uh, Richmond, Virginia. Uh, the Post does point out that uh, had Ken Cuccinelli won the governor's race, 
we might have had even more chickens because uh, the former attorney general has a flock of his own in northern Virginia. He uh, told the Post in an email, if I'd become governor, I probably would have chickens too. We have 17 right now. That's more than I have at the moment. wonder how many bacon seeds Ken Cuccinelli has. We need to uh, try to get Cuccinelli uh, uh, on the uh, program. Ken Cuccinelli, I, I don't know him. I, I, I'm not one of those people who could say cooch. Uh, we need to, I would love to talk with Ken Cuccinelli, though. Uh, he is working on an oyster farm in Virginia. He's doing a lot uh, with agriculture in Virginia. So if, if he's ever in the Farmville area, we're going to have to try to get uh, the former attorney general on the program. All right. Well, we don't have any red dorkings uh, here in the yard, but uh, we do have one farm dork who has much more 40 acres and a fool. Coming up for you right after this from the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. Coming up today on Pat and Stew. There have been two congressmen to ever be congressmen and then eventually be elected president. I thought that number was two oh, elected. Yeah, because because Ford, Ford was appointed never elected. VP, and then yeah, right, never elected. Never elected. Um, Lincoln, right? Lincoln mm-hmm. was served in like ten years before he became president. Pat and Stu, weekdays at five p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Forty Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards returns now on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to 40 Acres and a Fool from the Blaze Radio Network. I'm your host, Cam Edwards. was talking earlier in the show about, oh, you can hear the, uh, I don't know if you can hear the cicadas. They just fired up now. The uh, sun is setting. We're still out here at the uh, picnic table. Now the uh, the night noises start to begin. I, uh, I mentioned when I was in Poughkeepsie, uh, Congressman Chris Gibson uh, spoke to the National uh, or the uh, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association, gave an amazing speech. Uh, he is also the uh, sponsor, one of the sponsors of the Young Farmer Success Act of 2015, along with uh, Representative Joe Courtney, Democrat from Connecticut, according to uh, the National Young Farmers Coalition. The uh, bill seeks to address a major crisis facing American agriculture. Not enough young people are becoming farmers. As the majority of existing farmers near retirement, the average age of the American farmer is 58, by the way. Young Farmers Coalition says we need at least 100,000 new farmers to take their place. But between 2007 and 2012, the number of young farmers increased by only 1,220. So, the uh, Young Farmer Success Act of 2015 would incentivize farming as a career by adding farmers to the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program, an existing program that already includes professions like government service, teaching, and nursing. Under the program, public service professionals who make 10 years of income-driven student loan payments would have the balance of their loans forgiven. Congressman Gibson says... uh, Our farmers not only generate vital economic activity in every state, they produce our food and fiber and protect their rural landscape as true public servants. This common-sense legislation makes it far easier for our college graduates to return to the family farm or begin production on land of their own, safeguarding a way of life that sustains our nation. 
the uh, National Young Farmers Coalition back in 2011 conducted a survey of a uh, a thousand young farmers, found that 78% of respondents struggled with a lack of capital. This is true, I would think, for non-farmers, too, in this economy. In 2014, they surveyed 700 young farmers with student loan debt. They found that the average burden of student loans was $35,000 and that 53% of respondents are currently farming but have a hard time making their student loan payments. Another 30% are interested in farming but haven't pursued it as a career because their salary as a farmer wouldn't be enough to cover their student loan payments. Uh, Lindsay Lusher Shute who is a uh, young farmer herself, the executive director and co-founder of the National Young Farmers Coalition. Uh, House Bill 2590 has support from nearly 100 farming organizations, including the National Farmers Union, the FFA, uh, and Farm Aid. She said, uh, if we want to support rural economies and feed our nation, not just for the next five years, but for the next five generations and beyond, we must make recruiting farmers a top priority. This will be considered as part of the reauthorization of the uh, Higher Education Act, which is the legislation that houses the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program. Uh, In the meantime, farmers like Epstein will continue to pursue off-farm jobs while paying down their student loan debt, hoping for a day when they can start a a farm of their own. Now, I I, I have not read the uh, legislation uh, itself. So I, I don't know the specifics, but uh, I'm, I'm curious as to how a, a small farmer is defined. Uh, and would this make it easier for somebody to return to the family farm? Would it make it just as easy for somebody to, to strike out on their own and become a small farmer? Uh, what's the scale that uh, you have to start with uh, to, to, to be defined as a farmer? If you are, um, uh, let's say, you know, producing and selling to uh, farmer's markets, uh, if you are deriving, are you allowed to have off-farm income uh, and still face the student loan forgiveness? I, I don't know the answer to any of these questions. Uh, I'm, I'm curious about the details of this, but the Young Farmer Success Act of 2015 uh, sounds like a very interesting bill, again, authored by uh, Representative Chris Gibson from uh, New York. Hopefully we'll have the uh, chance to talk with him on NRA News Cam and Company before long, and uh, I'll have to ask him a question or two about the Young Farmer Success Act of 2015. As well, I just don't want to see this turn into a uh, a situation where all of a sudden Governor McAuliffe is declaring himself to be a farmer and his kids get to go to, to college for free. You know what I mean? And the uh, well, listen, I have a uh, a flock a flock of two chickens that live on my balcony. That makes me a farmer, right? I, I I'm just uh, you know I'm just thinking, hmm, hmm, maybe this could help my kids go to college. I'm hmm, very curious about this. Uh, this bill by Congressman Chris Gibson. Uh, you know, it's interesting, too, the uh, the website for the uh, National Young Farmers Coalition uh, ha- has a lot of stories of uh, young farmers, relatively new farmers. Um, they, they call them the bootstrap bloggers uh, who are all in their first or second year of uh, running a farm. And it's interesting. They're, they're talking with folks from Kentucky, from Texas, from uh, uh, Franklin County, Kansas, a first-generation uh, bootstrapped startup called Willow Springs Farm focused on producing high-quality grass-fed beef products. Mmm, steak is what's for dinner. Our farm, Hannah Becker writes, uh, currently has 15 acres under operation with another 45 leased acres designated for future development. Just wrapped up their first crowdfunded campaign 
and uh, look forward to purchasing their inaugural herd August the 1st. She grew up outside of Washington, D.C., didn't have many opportunities to explore agriculture. She uh, was determined, she says, to pursue her dreams of owning a cattle operation. She graduated with a B.S. in Animal and Dairy Science and her Master's of Business Administration. She also became one of the uh, first female cattle producers recognized as a master cattle producer by the uh, Mississippi State Extension and she completed the Masters of Beef Advocacy Certification. I think it's the Masters of Beef Advocacy Certification. I think it should just be a Masters of Beef Certification. Uh, she says her objective for Willow Springs Farm to lead the Kansas City area in high-quality beef production by producing enough beef in 2020 to feed 150 community members. As a self-funded farming operation, uh, Willow Springs Development requires innovative strategy and determination. Completing her undergrad and graduate school education required the resources of student loans. Uh, so she, too, is one of the uh, uh, individuals who is uh, trying to qualify for student loan, wants this bill to qualify for student loan forgiveness. Now, again, do you need a – it raises some interesting questions. I'm sympathetic to this, but do you need a master's degree to run a 60-acre uh, 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 cattle operation that's uh, hopefully going to produce enough beef that you can have 150 members of your – CSA, uh, if you graduate with $35,000 or $50,000 in debt, does that get uh, forgiven because you uh, you have 15 acres under operation and you are looking forward to purchasing your inaugural herd thanks to your crowdfunded campaign? I, I'm, again, I'm, I'm, I'm really curious how the, uh, the this program gets implemented. Uh, she writes, the financial constraints of my loan repayment, pull money away from would-be farm investments, just uh, thus slowing the growth and scale of uh, her operation. She writes, I believe farming is one of the most noble and needed of all professions. I'm honored to be afforded the opportunity to live out my dreams of producing food for our world. Uh, she too notes the average age of a U.S. farmer is now 58. Only 6% of U.S. farmers are under the age of 35. She writes, the emergence of new agricultural entities such as Willow Springs Farm, are necessary uh, to ensure our future food supply. I guess I'm uh, kind of right there in the middle. I'm over the age of 35. I'm, thankfully, uh, far younger than the uh, median age of 58, although I'm getting closer by the day. In fact, happy birthday coming up here in a couple of weeks, but, uh, yeah, still won't nearly be anywhere near 58. Uh, it's, it, it's interesting to get these perspectives, uh, and I, I, I do want to be sympathetic uh, and I realize I don't know a whole lot about these issues, so I am, I'm trying very hard not to sound dogmatic and, uh, uh, and, and very authoritarian here. I'm just, I have a lot of questions, uh, again, about how this program would work. As far as her Indiegogo campaign uh, worked, uh, $1,610 raised out of 15000 for a Willow Springs farm. It closed on April 29th of this year, so, so maybe... Uh, maybe Indiegogo and crowdfunding your herd is um, not the best way to actually start your farm, which is disappointing because I was thinking maybe I'd just start a uh, crowdfunding campaign for a uh, uh, a new uh, chicken coop area where we could have a little nursery with the uh, uh, incubators going. But eh, now I'm thinking probably not the... Uh, the best idea. I, I, I look. I wish these folks the best. It is tough, uh, and it is a real concern. 
I think one of the things that they leave out, unfortunately, is uh, technological progress. And it may very well be that uh, 20, 30 years from now, um, no, we don't need as many farmers. It, it may be that 20 or 30 years from now, what we need are uh, technicians and repair people and people who can uh, keep an eye on the uh, robotic machines that are taking care of the vast majority of our large-scale farming needs. I mean, that may be the future. It may not be small family farms. Um, but if we want these small family farms to continue, we do have to try to figure out a way to make it possible and accessible uh, to those who didn't grow up on a small family farm. Uh, those who, 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 who as this uh, lady in uh, Kansas, uh, grew up watching Gunsmoke or grew up watching Green Acres or just grew up going to their uh, grandparents' place or their friend's uncle's farm for the 4th of July. Uh, we've got to make sure that those people have that passion, that dedication, uh, and a commitment to farming. Again, have that opportunity. And speaking of opportunity, uh, when we come back after a quick timeout, we're going to talk about Arthur C. Brooks's brand new book, The Conservative Heart, How to Build a Fairer, Happier, and More Prosperous America. There's a lot of talk about the, uh, uh, the opportunity gap in this country in Arthur C. Brooks's new book. It's a, a very thought-provoking read, and we'll talk about it again coming up right after this quick timeout here on 40 Acres and a Fool from the Blaze Radio Network. 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc and Skip. So uh, recently, the Transportation Security Administration had their secret screening checklist leaked. They're responsible for security. It's right in their name. And yet they had their secret checklist of what would call you out or single you out for additional screening. It's a secret checklist that got leaked. They're doing it wrong. They really are. You're telling me you are secure. You're responsible for security. And you can't even secure yourself? The Morning Blaze with Doc and Skip. Weekday mornings, 6 to 9 Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. Don't forget you can catch NRA News Cam and Company, sponsored by Nosler each and every weekday on nranews.com, live at 2 p.m. Eastern. Uh, You can also find us on demand all the time at uh, iHeartRadio and through iTunes. But thank you for tuning in to this edition of 40 Acres and a Fool. It is uh, uh, evening time here on the 40 Acres. As you can probably hear, the night noises are getting louder. I, I, I fully expect, actually, to get an email from the uh, folks at the Blaze Radio saying, listen, we need you to do the show from inside. It's really noisy uh, when you're doing the show out at the picnic table in the evening. So can you just go somewhere where it's a little quieter than your backyard? I got to say, it's beautiful right now. It is, uh, it's not humid. It's probably uh, 80 degrees or so. You might be able to hear a hog in the background if I shut up for a second. They're uh, settling down for the evening. The sun has set. The fireflies are out. 
they're just these little incandescent green uh, lights dancing all across the yard and up the driveway into the pasture and in the uh, the woods across the the driveway. Uh, the stars are starting to come out. I can see uh, Venus already. It's just it's a beautiful evening. It is not. We've not had too many of these beautiful evenings as of late. It's either been stormy or it's been so flipping humid that you don't even want to be outside uh, and you're out there pulling weeds and uh, you know making sure that the uh, the lawn is mowed and it just feels awful tonight it feels absolutely beautiful so I do apologize for the background noise but uh, I'm, I'm glad that I'm doing my show from out here this evening <laughs> you got to find your happiness which is uh one of the themes of Arthur C. Brooks's new book, The Conservative Heart, How to Build a Fairer, Happier, and More Prosperous America. Now, I realize that this sounds like the, 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 the title of the book makes it sound like a book that uh, Kurt Schlichter would hate, right? Ah, this is way too caring for Kurt. Not, not really. Uh, Arthur C. Brooks is the head of the American Enterprise Institute. This book is, at, at the heart, a defense of the free enterprise system. Uh, but it is also a defense, I think, of small c conservatism. Uh, I had the opportunity to talk with Arthur C. Brooks about the book, uh, actually earlier today as I record this uh, podcast, and it was interesting. You know, you get back to the, the the sort of one of the foundational splits that we have, and it doesn't necessarily split right uh, smack dab uh, along the right left divide, but it is one of the foundational splits that we have in our society today. Uh, those who believe fundamentally and foundationally that this nation uh, was created so that individuals uh, could fulfill their pursuit of happiness their, and exercise their life of liberty uh, in that pursuit of happiness versus those who believe that uh, ultimately the individual, that's not what the state is about. In fact, the state is in conflict with the individual. The state is in charge. The individual must bow and bend to the will of the state. No. No, that's, that's not what this country was founded on. I mean, again, the words of Thomas Jefferson uh, and the, uh, the Continental Congress and the committee and everybody who was responsible for the uh, Declaration of Independence, but it really was Jefferson's words, uh, borrowing a little bit from Locke, that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And among these, not all of them, but among these, are the rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of of happiness. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that in order to protect these rights and further these rights, that's why we create government. To ensure that opportunity to pursue our happiness. So, if you if you come to government with the idea that it's, it's there to protect the individual, that the individual, we as individuals, uh, that, that that's why our government is here, as opposed to, well, we're all here just to serve the state, or conversely, that the state is here uh, not to uh, help us, uh, again, achieve that opportunity to pursue our happiness, but it is there to provide for our happiness. Uh, it is there to comfort us, to swaddle us, to care for us from a cradle to the grave. Uh, 
in that case, you know, the state might actually be getting in the way of us pursuing our happiness. So, so, so Arthur C. Brooks starts with this point here, that conservatives are often seen um, as uncaring, as uh, uh, the party of the rich. Republican uh, Party is the party of the rich. That We don't care about the poor. We don't care about uh, people as individuals. We just care about uh, uh, the, the 1% of America. And Arthur C. Brooks makes the case and tells uh, how you can make the case that, no, that simply isn't true. When you look at, for instance, the war on poverty, uh, there is no moral high ground to be claimed by saying that, well, you know what, I was uh, right there on the side of Lyndon Baines Johnson and the people who opposed the uh, Great Society. Why, why they were just a bunch of people who wanted to see poor people starve. I was the, uh, the, the, the morally correct position. That was the one that I held, and I'm proud of Listen, Americans, just like with gun control, most Americans, regardless of whether you're a gun owner or you're an anti-gun activist, most Americans are fighting for less violent crime. We're fighting for a safer society. We may disagree on how to get there, but we're fighting for the same thing. Most people on the left and on the right uh, uh, want to see less poverty, right? We want to see a richer society, not just in terms of monetary riches, uh, but in terms of the richness of opportunity, again, to, uh, to lead a fulfilling life. The, the, the difference is in how you get there. That's where the argument, that's where the debate comes in. Uh, and again, is it going to be the free enterprise system, which has lifted people out of poverty all around the world, which has uh, lifted uh, real incomes all around the world uh, you know, over the last 20 years in a way that this world has really never seen before? Or is it going to be the heavy hand of the state coming in and trying to micromanage everything? Uh, Arthur C. Brooks uh, talks about the, the power of work. Uh, in this book, The Heart of Conservatism, or The Conservative Heart. And um, it, it reminded me a lot of uh, Mike Rowe, host of Dirty Jobs and the uh, Mike Rowe Works Foundation. Uh, just another acknowledgement that work is important. You know, right now in this country, we have the lowest participation in our workforce since the Carter years. Uh, among young Americans in particular, the uh, employment rate is awful. Uh, levels really uh, comparable to the, to the Great Depression. Uh, this is a Great Depression for a lot of our younger workers, particularly those without college degrees or without uh, advanced degrees, although even a college degree is not a guarantee that you're going to find a job, again, that will allow you to uh, pay all your, bill, all your bills and uh, live on your own, maybe have a, uh, a used car and, and uh, the ability to go out to the movies once a month or so. Even a college degree is no guarantee that you're going to be able to have those things. So things are not great uh, for the youth of America right now. But the policies and the proposals put forth by the left, the uh, income uh, redistribution schemes uh, that we're hearing from Bernie Sanders, uh, Hillary Clinton will likely uh, start talking more about this as uh, Bernie Sanders uh, pulls her to the left uh, during the primary these are our policies that, uh, uh, that, that are innervating uh, as opposed to uh, policies that are ennobling. Uh, they, they tend to make things worse, not better. You know, the Great Society, as Arthur C. Brooks pointed out, was created in 1965. In 1966, the poverty rate in the United States was 14.7%. Uh, it is now... At, uh, I think, 2013, the last year for which Arthur C. Brooks had the data, 
is now at 14.5%. It's fluctuated. Uh, it's been rising over the last uh, 10 years or so. But after 50 years, after trillions of dollars now in spending, Arthur C. Brooks makes the point that we have seen a uh, reduction in the poverty rate of two-tenths of one percent. By no standard, by no metric, could that be considered a success. So he points out, though, conservatives haven't really had an answer. I mean, you know, back in the 60s, there really wasn't anybody saying, all right, here's my alternative to the great society. Uh, Now we're starting to see some alternatives uh, to these types of uh, programs that are, again, innervating as opposed to uh, uh, enabling opportunity. One of the things that uh, he writes about in uh, The Conservative Heart uh, is a program called the Doe Fund in New York, which was created by a guy uh, who would visit Grand Central Station. He would give uh, sandwiches, snacks, candy to, uh, to people who were homeless there. And there was one Christmas morning where a uh, homeless woman was discovered dead there in the terminal at Grand Central Station, uh, and, and the founder of the Doe Fund had given her a sandwich the night before. He realized, you know, we have to do more than just feed people a meal. Uh, we have to try to change lives. So the Doe Fund starts in uh, Harlem, and they, they work with uh, men who uh, really are all ex-offenders. They've all done prison time. They get out. They're looking for housing. They're looking for employment. Uh, they're looking for, for something to do, and they can apply to be a part of the DOE program. And they do have to apply. And the DOE program can say, nope, we don't think you're right for the program. Sorry. But if you apply and if you're accepted into the DOE program, uh, you start to learn everything from budgeting to uh, laundry to, you know, basic life skills, but you also work. And you start with what sounds like a pretty crappy job. You start cleaning streets. You start shoveling snow in the wintertime, cleaning off graffiti on the streets of New York in the spring and in the summer. Uh, You push a bucket, you push a mop, and you work, and you work an honest day, and you get an honest day's pay. Now, a lot of these guys are able to move up uh, into different uh, activities, different companies. In fact, some of these guys have actually gone on to create their own company, you know, pest control companies, things of that nature. What this work gives them uh, is something that is uh, important for all of us. It is a sense of of worth, a sense of value. There's a uh, story that Arthur Brooks quotes in his his book about a man, uh, part of the Doe uh, Fund, and uh, he was working for a pest control company. He got a... uh, uh, a text from his boss as he was talking with Arthur C. Brooks. It was a big uh, project. You know, we need you here right now. Uh, and this guy, rather than being put out of, oh, sorry, I got to go do this job, he was so happy. He said, look, I'm needed. I'm needed. And that wasn't always the case. Uh, Arthur C. Brooks tells the story of uh, individuals in this program who uh, are, are being greeted by name as they uh, uh, clean the streets there in Manhattan by people who otherwise wouldn't have given the time of day, but now they're actually acknowledging uh, this uh, individual as an individual. And the work that these men do is so important to their self-worth. 
Because having a job that is either a meaningful job to you, and listen, here's the thing. Arthur C. Brooks also makes the point that any job can be meaningful. We have this cultural condescension in this country that, uh, well, you know, it's not a really important job. I mean, you're not on MSNBC or anything, right? You're not, you're not working for BuzzFeed or the Huffington Post. So that's a, whatever. It's a manual labor job. So what? So what if it's a manual labor job? So what if it's a fast food job? So what if you're washing cars? It doesn't mean that a that's going to be what you're doing forever. B it doesn't mean that that's not a meaningful job. You have the opportunity, no matter what it is that you're doing, to have an impact on other people's lives every day. Your job can be meaningful to you, uh, even if the rest of the world would say, well, whatever, you're just uh, mopping floors. Let let them uh, be condescending. It's probably a sign that they're not really happy with their job. But uh, Arthur C. Brooks reminds us in the conservative heart that um, jobs, any job out there, uh, can have meaning because any job out there can, can and is important for the person holding that job. It helps put a roof over their head. It helps put food on their table. It uh, hopefully helps them save a little bit of money from time to time. These are meaningful things when you can provide for yourself and start to provide for yourself, maybe even provide for others. Uh, when you are able to give back after a lifetime of taking, which is the case for uh, a lot of these guys who are ex-offenders, right? They've been taking from people. They've been taking from society. Now this is an opportunity to have a job in which they are giving back. And it really does seem to make a difference. Uh, the recidivism rate, for those involved in the Doe Fund is uh, a lot lower than it is for the uh, average felon who gets out of prison and uh, begins looking for work. This is one of several examples that uh, Arthur C. Brooks provides in talking, uh, particularly about those who are uh, among the poorest uh, in the country, uh, those who have been most affected by the uh, Obama economy of the last six years or so, uh, really is the poorest Americans. They've actually seen a, not just a stagnation in wages, but a reduction in wages. He talks about uh, the middle class as well, which has seen uh, stagnating wages. And again, policies that, that can help the middle class, policies that are free market oriented, policies that uh, help government get out of the way, and policies that, uh, again, demonstrate the caring and the concern that we have for our fellow individual Americans to live that life of freedom and of liberty and to pursue their happiness. So if you're looking for a more summer reading, uh, be sure to check out The Conservative Heart, How to Build a Fairer, Happier, and More Prosperous America by Arthur C. Brooks, the uh, head of the American Enterprise Institute. As I said, it's very thought-provoking, uh, very, very interesting, and uh, I would think well worth your time. Hopefully this was well worth your time as well. We do need to take a, uh, I, I guess, a uh, take a moment to say goodbye here. As the sun has now set, I'm sitting out here in the pitch darkness and I can start to feel uh, the bug bites rising on the back of my hand. So it's probably time to say farewell, uh, at least for uh, a week or so. 
Thanks again for being a part of this edition of 40 Acres and a Fool presented by the Blaze Radio Network. Until we talk again, be safe, have fun, live a little, learn a lot, and we'll talk to you here soon on another edition of 40 Acres and a Fool. 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network.